0: And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 9, Pillar of the Western People. We left Alfred in the midst of a rush of reform across all aspects of Wessex society. By 891 it was clear that Wessex faced a new threat from Viking invasion. Alfred was now ahead of the game and he made the leaders of the Danish kingdoms in England give oaths that they would not, in Anyway, under any circumstances, support the new Danish army. It was a lovely thought. I wonder if Alfred actually thought it would work. It didn't as it happens, and didn't fairly conclusively actually. Guthrum or Athelstan had died in eight ninety after seemingly living the last ten years of his life in peace with his death. No new Danish coins were issued. We rarely even know the names of the kings in East Anglia that it could be that he was succeeded by somebody called Eorik. But there is a theme. The Vikings often did not appear to have the ambition to build centralised kingdoms, or maybe it's put better by saying the forces of those small units and local loyalties were strong. When the raids were over and the Viking had his land, no organised unity replaced the old warbands, or not quickly anyway. And when the influx of new warriors dried up, this would make them vulnerable. However, what will become clear is that Northumbria and East Anglia still had many ambitious young warriors looking to build their fortune in the traditional Viking trade of murder and mayhem, and on occasion, sensitive afterwork, obviously. However, it needed a trigger, a catalyst, and during the 1880s, that seemed to be missing. But in the early 90s, it would appear. So let us go over to the continent. The 880s were as dark a decade for the Low Countries and Northern France as the 860s and 70s had been for England. After Guthrum's defeat at the hand of Alfred, parts of the Viking army went to settle East Anglia and Eastern Mercia, parts of them returned to Northumbria, but some were attracted by stories of opportunity on the continent. That period saw wholesale warfare between constant Viking raids and large scale armies and the Carolingian. Charles the Fat. Charles was to take a Roman strategy on more than one occasion, buying the Vikings off by essentially giving them the land they'd already captured, in return for their acknowledgement of his lordship. Through this, the County of Holland and the ruling House of Holland seems to have been formed. In 885 and 86, a vast Viking army besieged Paris itself though the Vikings were to prove again that breaking into well-fortified towns was not one of their many talents, and the siege was broken. Substantial Viking raids also took place further south, along the Loire Valley. And one of the Viking leaders on the Loire was a man called Haston, who in 882 was finally persuaded by Louis the Stammerer, little brother of Queen Judith, incidentally, to leave. And so Haston took his ships northwards, was probably part of the great Viking armies causing chaos in the Low Countries and northern France. We hear of him next in 891 on the River Somme in Normandy, in a bit of classic Viking area, doing a deal with the Abbot of St Vast to be given a base in return for protecting the Abbey from other Vikings. And then, when he was all installed, raiding the Abbey and destroying it when he was good and ready. A man's word is his bond and all that. But the good times were coming to an end for the Vikings. In 891, Arnulf, King of the Franks, destroyed a Viking army at Louvain and built a castle to block the rivers there from further raids. Hasten made a base at Amiens for another year, but when the harvest failed in 892, no doubt partially due to the war, Hasten decided he should take his followers to somewhere more promising. And so he went west, young man. He took his 80 ships and followers to England, to test the defences of Wessex. It would seem the word of his intentions had spread, or otherwise it just so happens that throughout the Danish-held lands in England, others were looking for something more than the life of the plough could give, and so he was not to be alone. In 892, two fleets actually landed in Kent in the mouth of the Thames. The smaller of the two was Haston and his 80 ships landing in northern Kent, The second, that was big indeed, 250 ships. Sadly, we never know the name of the leader of this second fleet and army, but it appears to have been drawn also from northern France. The larger force made camp in southern Kent. Now, Alfred's immediate objective was to stop these two from meeting and pick one of them off if possible. So he brought his army to somewhere between the two and he treated almost immediately with the leader of the smaller northern force, our Haston. And as a result, Haston made a camp north of the Thames in Essex and had his two sons baptised as Christians. Alfred stood as godfather to one of the lads and Athared of Mercia godfather to the other. While all this was going on, the larger force set off deep into Wessex, moving west and north into Hampshire and Berkshire and managed to evade Alfred until spring 893 when having gathered a lot of plunder They turned north and east, looking to meet up with Haston in Essex. This, then, is when we get our first glimpse of Edward, the eldest son of Alfred. Edward's date of birth isn't clear somewhere in the early 870s, so in 893, let's say, he's in the region of 20 years old. In common with most medieval kings, we know almost nothing of him before he starts to appear in the Chronicles. We have just a snippet from Asser's biography, who describes Edward as an obedient son to Alfred, who treats others with humility, friendliness and gentleness, and a child given a good liberal education, as you'd expect from a child of Alfred. Asa tells us he'd learned the Psalms, books in English and especially English poems. Edward was Alfred's eldest and probably his heir, but again, remember there's no surety at all about that. And lurking around in the shadows is a cousin, Athelwald, son of Alfred's older brother, who might well have words about that. Anyway, in 893, it's Edward's martial gifts rather than literary that are of interest. It is Edward and the third who intercepted the Danes as they turned north at the borough of Farnham. Intriguingly, the battle at Farnham is mentioned by the chronicler Athelward, not the Anglo-Saxon chronicle which could possibly be a reflection of pro-Alfred and pro-Edward factions. But either way, Edward and his army routed the Vikings. And then followed a helter-skelter flight of 20 miles, with Edward snapping at the Danish heels as they ran. The flight was so close that when the Danes hit a river, the River Colne in this case, they had no chance to look for a ford and simply had to dive across and hole up in an island in the middle of the river where they could defend themselves. For those interested, the island has been identified as Thorny Island at Iver in Buckinghamshire. At this critical juncture, the Danes in Northumbria and East Anglia intervened and they launched a seaborne invasion into Devon, attacking Exeter. Alfred had to split his army and head off down to the seaside and for the next six months was unable to take any part in the main event. So Edward now took control but despite the fact that he was joined by Athelred of Mercia, they didn't feel they had enough men to force the river and attack the Danes on their island, and so it was a stalemate. In the end, Edward decided the priority was to get the Danes off his land, and so he dealt with them and allowed them to leave. Meanwhile, back in Essex, Huston had established a camp at Benfleet and taken off to go raiding in Mercia. While he was away, the defeated Danish army rolled into his camp, to join his women and children. Close behind, Edward attacked again and captured the fort, everything in it, and sent the Danes packing. A nice little cameo is about the wife and sons of Haston being brought to Alfred from the captured fort. Rather than use them as hostages, Alfred loaded them up with loads of presents and sent them back to Haston, refusing to use his godson as a hostage in such a way, and it's another measure of the man. Anyway, Haston arrived back at this point, and the balance of power swung back again the other way. Once they'd established a new fort yet further east towards the mouth of the Thames at a place called Shubury, the Danes felt safe. And once more, new Danish warriors had joined Haston from Northumbria and East Anglia, replenishing his ranks and eager for the chance to make some money. And so Haston felt strong enough to strike out again. Duly, he set out on a raid up the River Thames all the way to the west of England, carrying on north up the River Severn. But as they marched, they were faced by a very different proposition than Guthrum had faced in 870. All along the Thames, the Danes were faced by Alfred's burrs, and their freedom of movement was severely restricted. They never managed to penetrate into Wessex to any significant depth. And here, at last, Haston was stopped he was stopped by a combination of forces, the aldermen of Mercia, Wiltshire and Somerset, plus the garrisons of all the burrs along the way, and the fight was self-consciously Christian against Pagan, and for that reason the Welsh, perennial enemies of the Anglo-Saxons, were happy to send a force and face the Danes with them. The Danes were finally trapped, and besieged on an island near the Welsh border, the siege went on for several weeks until finally they were able to cut their way through the English lines and make it back to their fort in Shubury. Now although the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle talks about a great slaughter, the Viking army was clearly still a viable unit. So we should take the proverbial pinch of salt to the obviously pro-Saxon Chronicle, but however biased it is, it's clear that the Danes so far had spent an arid year with little success. But the year was not over. 893 was not finished yet for Haston. He realised that shrewsbury was not the best place for him now. OK, it was on the coast and therefore close to escape and by ship and all that. But being stuck away in the southeastern corner of Essex didn't give easy access to other parts of the kingdom. And he needed access to a fresh supply of men from the Danish kingdoms of England or even the Norwegian kingdoms of Ireland. And so Haston broke camp yet again. And once more the Danes moved with blistering speed. Their objective was Chester in the northwest. Now, Chester was an old Roman town. In common with London, the Angles had never settled within the walls, and so it had been deserted since the time of the Romans. But its walls would make a perfect base for operations. But one of the striking things about the campaign in 893 had been the ability of the Anglo-Saxon forces to keep pace with the Vikings. Alfred's reorganisation of the Third, the availability of men at any time from the Burrs, had all helped. Now in a straight race they couldn't keep up, it's got to be said, and Haston was soon safe within the old Roman walls. But the English leaders were able to not let the Danes settle. They besieged Chester. They cut the Danes off from their food supply by devastating the surrounding area and destroying everything the Vikings might be able to use for food. And Haston again knew that unless he could give his followers the plunders they were looking for, they would simply leave. He would lose his army. The year must have been a completely dispiriting experience for the Danes. And so in the autumn of 893, desperate to give his men what he wanted, he managed to break out of Chester and headed instead for Wales. For the rest of 893 and into 894, Haston ravaged all the way down the eastern side of Wales, down to the Bristol Channel, and back up to the north. Later, in 894, the English knew that Haston had returned to Northumbria, laden with Welsh treasure, and that he was moving back to Essex by way of East Anglia. But they were unable to do anything about it, since they were reluctant to enter the Danish kingdoms, and thereby give King Guthrith of Northumbria an official excuse to join Haston. At about the same time, the Danish army in Exeter... Remember them? Finally, they gave up, got onto their ships and headed for home. On the way, they thought they would carry out some good old traditional raiding and help themselves to some plunder. They selected Sussex on the south coast and landed near Chichester and started to ravage the surrounding countryside. Chichester was the largest town in Sussex. It had been a Roman town and had been taken over by Allah in 477 and renamed after his son, Chissa. It was also one of Alfred's new burrs, and one of the largest at that. So here was a good example of the burrs in operation. The garrison of the burr were quickly formed up, and they attacked the Danes. They were entirely successful, so much so that not only did they kill many of their number, but also managed to capture a number of the Danish ships as they scrambled to escape. The departure of the Danish army from Exeter also released Alfred, and he was able to rejoin Edward and Alderman Athelred. Haston by this time had gone to ground. He had arrived back in Essex, and this time had established a camp at Mercia, further north from Shoebury on the Essex coast. They then moved both themselves and their ships onto the River Lee. This is a river that runs from the north of London into the Thames. The Danes were therefore based about 20 miles north of London, possibly at Hartford, And there the Danes remained, apparently without great incident, until the summer of 895. The Anglo-Saxons knew they needed to be dislodged, since they were in easy striking distance of London or central Wessex. But the first attempt by the garrison of London was a failure. The Vikings' camp was too strong for the Anglo-Saxon army and they were repulsed with the death of four of the King's Thanes, plus an unspecified number of your average kind, whose lives, sadly, don't warrant a mention in the great historical records. Alfred's next idea was to be more effective. He built two forts on the river south of the Danish camp, so they wouldn't be able to move south down the River Lee to attack London, and nor would they be able to escape easily by sea. He moved his army close to the camp, so they wouldn't be able to ravage the nearby countryside, and especially not be able to steal the harvest. And so Haston moved again and took his men west, again with great speed, to bridge north in the west of England on the River Severn. But his time was running out. His Danes hadn't joined him to wander all round England on some kind of tour. They'd come looking for gold, for gold and glory. East Anglia and Northumbria again tried to help by distracting Alfred and his army, just as they'd done with the attack on Exeter in 894 and they, in their turn, ravaged all along the south coast of England by ship. Alfred had used ships before to try to tackle the Danes before they reached land, and by 896 we see how far this process has come. Some in this, as we've said, have seen Alfred's work establishing an English navy, but as we've said, it's really much too early for that. It was much more a response to a specific challenge that they faced. Now Alfred realised a new effort was needed and he commissioned the ships on a larger plan than those available to the Vikings. The ships appeared to be modelled on 60 rowing seats rather than the more normal 20 of the Vikings. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle records one raid on the Isle of Wight in particular detail and that is one of the things I love about the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. It's completely capricious. Sometimes you get absolutely nothing about a year or just the recording of a comet or some such. Other times you get reams of information about the most specific thing. But anyway, the other thing this entry shows is that Alfred also looked for expertise from outside England to make sure his navy was effective. And so we see Frisians talked about as part of the ship's crews. Frisia is on the northeast coast of the continent where the Low Countries are now. And it was the home of experienced and skilled seamen. All told, The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle claims that the Danes lost some 20 ships as they tried to raid the coast that year, whether from naval fights or where their raiding parties were captured by the Burghal garrisons. At some point in the summer of 896, as the raids failed to distract Alfred from their camp, the Danes realised that England had changed for good. They'd now spent four years in England. They had almost nothing to show for it and little prospect of more. And so it was time to call a halt and the Viking army dispersed. Some who were satisfied with the treasure they'd won returned to Northumbria or East Anglia and set up homes there, and the likelihood is that Haston was one of those settling with his family somewhere. His is a name that crops up in several chronicles across England and the continent, recording a journey from raider to war leader to family man. Others were still looking for their fortune, Somehow, they found some ships and headed off again for the River Seine in France. We know of one particular group, led by a man called Hundeus, which arrives with five ships and, after a deal of ravaging in the Viking idiom, are again converted and settled by Charles the Simple. And so we come to the end of the Great Danish War of 892 to 896. There are many points of similarity between this period and the Great Heathen Army. The Viking threat, though, was now from land, not sea. The Vikings had demonstrated their speed, mobility, rapacity. The Danes had also, at all points, retained the initiative and the Anglo-Saxons had been forced to follow and try to react. But much more significant things were the differences. The Danes had a massive advantage they would not had in 866, namely, well-established Danish kingdoms, happy and willing to support the invading army. But this time the Danes had much less freedom of action and were never able to penetrate deeply into Wessex. The Anglo-Saxon army, though one step behind, had far greater mobility than it had had in the previous campaign. This partly due to Alfred's splitting of the third, which allowed them to move from shire to shire, partly to the availability of ready-made groups of armed men in the form of the Burghal garrisons, and partly due to the king's household thanes who kept mounted retinues available with the king at all times. In addition, all the resources of the English were targeted towards just one end, the removal of the Vikings, with Mercia and Wessex working seamlessly together, even being supported at one point by the Welsh. And so although the Anglo-Saxons were unable to defeat the Vikings decisively, the Vikings were also unable to inflict defeat on the Anglo-Saxons. The Anglo-Saxons managed to turn the conflict into a war of attrition and the Viking army was not well suited to such a war. Alfred by this time had only another three years to live and the 892-896 to 896 war had a sense of the end of an era in other ways. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle lists the death of eight of Alfred's most important aldermen, thanes and officers for example and hold this up as a greater problem than the Danes. We know almost nothing of the last three years of Alfred's reign and we should strongly suspect that no news was good news and that at least in the last three years of his life Alfred was able to devote himself to learning the thing he loved most. Alfred probably died on the eve of the new century in October 899 at the age of 50 after a reign of 28 years. He was originally buried in the Old Minster at Winchester which had been founded by his predecessor Chenwall in 648 but two years later Edward completed the building of a new minster in line with Alfred's wishes right next door. It's quite possible that the new minster was built specifically to receive his body. His grave was lost in the dissolution of the monasteries in 1538, and although the graves were rediscovered in 1788 during the building of a prison, all the bones were scattered, so we don't know where Alfred's remains are, although there was a suggestion that we might have refound them relatively recently. So, how do we sum up Alfred? The very strong impression you get is that learning and Christianity were his greatest loves and that he was at best a reluctant warrior and is most definitely not the bloodthirsty warrior leader type in the mould of Pender or many of his Wessexon predecessors. War was a necessary affair of state for him. But he was most certainly not a bloodless man. He loved hunting. And in his younger days, Asser tells us that he begged God to visit a punishment upon him being unable to control his passion for sex. As a war leader he was superbly successful with maybe the greatest of all qualities the ability to learn from his mistakes and we must remember just how close his kingdom came to being wiped out. He was a leader with a wider vision. This meant he was capable of devising an effective war strategy rather than simply reacting to events as did all his contemporaries. But in the middle of all this chaos fear and destruction he was also able to think much more long-term about how to ensure that his kingdom survived and flourished. Alfred saw connections and recognised that genuine and permanent success would not be dictated by a few successful battles, that his job was to establish a system and a structure that allowed the potential of his people to grow through education, for his leaders to be more effective through education and the acquisition of his beloved wisdom for a structure that allowed his kingdom to operate efficiently, and above all, a kingdom that was worthy of God's protection and favour. There is a tension in Alfred that's not entirely comfortable when looking for heroes. The depth of his religious instincts are without doubt. Remembering that he was fifth of five brothers, it's highly likely he never expected to become king, and quite possibly expected an ecclesiastical career. He accepted the secular role for which he was destined, but was never quite happy in it. As his biography shows how deeply he was affected by the tension between the violence and sex of the warrior's lifestyle and the ideals of Christian behaviour. He almost welcomed the physical pain of his illness as God's penance. He seems to me all the more impressive for continually facing that internal struggle and by and large winning. After all, let us compare his style with that of the many well-known and successful names that have been or will follow him in the story. Offer William of Normandy, Richard the Lionheart, Henry VIII, all egotistical, brutal men. Compare this with Alfred, such as returning the wife and sons of Haston to their father while he in turn was doing his best to destroy his kingdom. Before I break down and weep, maybe I should leave the final words to his contemporaries. Athelwood was an alderman of the Western Shires in the late 10th century, basing his work on a lost version of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. His chronicles describe Alfred as the unshakable pillar of the Western people, a man replete with justice, vigorous in warfare, learned in speech, and above all instructed in divine learning. Bishop Wolfseger described him as the greatest treasure-giver of all kings he has ever heard of. Which is rather fascinating, in that a Christian bishop is clearly reflecting his Anglo-Saxon heritage in the way he judges Alfred. Forget God learning and all that. Look at the treasure! And, of course, his biographer Asser should have a word. From the cradle onwards, in spite of all the demands of the present life, it has been the desire for wisdom more than anything else, together with the nobility of his birth, which have characterised the nature of his noble mind. And finally, we should give Winston Churchill a go at his view. We discern across the centuries a commanding and versatile intelligence, wielding with equal force the sword of war and of justice, using in defence, arms and policy. Cherishing religion, learning an art in the midst of adversity and danger, welding together a nation, and seeking always, across the feuds and hatreds of the age, a peace which would smile upon the land. Thank you, Winnie. One important legacy from Alfred was plenty of children, and in principle a secure succession. His eldest son Edward had been blooded in battle and leadership, and seemed sure to be accepted as the next king. Atherwald, however, was 31. He wasn't interested in the concept of being passed over for a younger man, again having once been passed over for an older before. Next time, we'll hear about Athelwald's plans.